Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Professor Alan Dershowitz has often been my radio guest. I've also had the privilege of having him on television when I've guest hosted Hardball. Never until this moment, as far as I know... Have we ever had the opportunity to say hello to one another? And it's really a privilege for me to have you in studio. Well, likewise, me, you're much better looking than I thought. <laughs> 20 pounds lighter uh-huh. than you expected, right? Yeah. Hey, Professor, I love your book. Thank I you. love your book. The book is titled Taking the Stand, My Life in the Law. This morning, when I woke up, I watched you on a platform I shall not name for the reasons I'm about to articulate. And I said, Dersh has written a hell of a book. These people haven't read the book. Mm -hmm. And the stories that he could be telling right now are getting lost. And I don't want them to get lost. I love all the stories in your book about your upbringing, your training in the law, 50 years at Harvard, 50 years, one employer. Right. And 10,000 students, including some of the leaders of the world. And it's such a privilege to be able to teach the future leaders of the world. And in my book, I project forward what the law is going to look like 50 years from now, because the students I'm teaching this semester, my last semester, are going to be world leaders 50 years from now. David Gergen, 
Yeah. A student of yours. Yeah. Yeah. Very quiet. Very quiet. Not memorable in the classroom, but outside the classroom when we would talk, he clearly was a leader. You could see that. Liddy Dole. She was very talkative, and she uh, was in a class of practically all women, because in those days, family law was called women's law, because women were thought to be suited only for the soft stuff. She was not soft at all. She was brilliant. My favorite, Jim Cramer. Jim didn't come to class all that often. <laughs> he was buying and selling stock. What, already? Oh, yeah. You know, his um, answering machine, when he was my research assistant, uh, had stock tips. <laughs> Right. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Elliot Spitzer. So terrific, terrific research assistant. Everything that happened to him was my fault, because one day I said to him, Elliot, you're working too hard. Go out and have some fun. Who would, who would who imagine? Knew? Right. Who knew? Right. When, when they come in, well, let, me, let me just see who else is on my list. Of course, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was brilliant, off the charts brilliant. And, you know, liberals make the terrible mistake, including some of my friends and colleagues, of thinking that all conservatives are dumb. And I think one of the reasons that conservatives have been beating liberals uh, in the courts and in public debates is because we underestimate them. Never underestimate Ted Cruz. He's off the chart brilliant. I don't agree with his politics. Was he conservative when he was your student? He was, but he was more of a libertarian. Uh, He was not so much a social conservative. At least that didn't come out in the class discussion. What was more evident was his libertarianism, and he was a terrific spokesman for kind of libertarian conservatism. In a typical class taught by Professor Alan Dershowitz at Harvard, how many students? Well, criminal law used to have 150 students, and in a given day, an hour and a half class, in a given day, 40 of them would speak. I would go around like... Socratic uh, method. Socratic method, no answer is right, go from student to student. I'd know my students very well and know what their positions essentially would be, so I knew who to call on to get a good, provocative discussion going. And I get 40, 50 students an hour or an hour and a half being able to talk. I remember my criminal law class at Penn, mm-hmm. Professor Stephen Schulhofer. was my student. He was in my... He was your student. Absolutely. I taught him everything he knows about criminal law. Okay, so Schulhofer called right. on me. I'm right. scared to death. This Professor, this is within like the first two weeks of class. Right. But he called on me after working his way all around the room and not being able to get anyone to speak in support of the death penalty. Finally sizes me up. I had hair then, but it was cropped very short and probably figures, okay, this, this guy's going to be my guy and i said yes professor i do believe in the death penalty and he's i will never forget he said you know mr smirnikoff mispronouncing my name the way everybody does do you really think it's a deterrent to which i responded well i know it deters at least one person at a time and eh, maybe a cheap shot line who knows my classmates they hissed at me well you know it's interesting because i play the devil's advocate in class uh, i know that students are embarrassed about stating their true views particularly conservative views so I come out in favor of the death penalty in my class, even though I've been a lifelong opponent. In my book, Taking the Stand, I tell the story about how Justice Goldberg assigned me to find reasons for striking down the death penalty as unconstitutional. I've always been against the death penalty since it was imposed on the Rosenbergs in 1951. But as a teacher, I say to my students, how dare you oppose the death penalty if I can prove to you that by killing one guilty defendant, you can save 10 innocent lives. You're acting immorally if you oppose the death penalty. And I press them and make them think hard about their positions. And then I'll get students coming up and stating views on the other side. But I I always take the devil's advocate view. The students don't know my positions in the classroom. I think that podium is a sacred trust and you can't use it to propagandize like Noam Chomsky does or other hard left people. They think the classroom is the place to teach Marxism. 
when I run through these famous personalities, Spitzer and Cruz and David Gergen and Liddy Dole. And the guy I left, uh, the guy I didn't let into my class, a guy named Barack Obama, right? Uh, right. I didn't Couldn't get in. Yeah. Be- twice. Uh, twice. <laughs> because the computer kept him out. But it wasn't my fault. I guess fault. my question is, so you've had 10,000 students. That's now, right. I, I've rattled off these personalities. You didn't know I was going to ask you about them. I'm sure others always do. But do you have that level of recall, not for all 10,000, but for many of them? Absolutely. Or is it... You do. Absolutely. Or, or I was going to say, Professor, is it that these are extraordinary personalities and you knew that's somebody special? Well, you can tell often in a class who the leaders are going to be. But sometimes the best students are very, very quiet and they just their their A plus grade just sneaks up on you. I remember a lot of my students. I remember now I, I happen to have a great memory. My mother gave me a great memory. It's genetic. But I remember my first year of teaching criminal law in 1964. I remember where students sat. I remember the name probably of 40 or 50 of the students in my first year class in criminal law. And uh, I very early on get to know all my students and really get to know their positions. I learned it from a pref- professor at Brooklyn College named Samuel Konevsky, who was blind. And within three or four days, he could recognize any student in the class by their voice and would call on students by name as long as you wow. just said, Professor, I have a wow. point. You know, you couldn't raise your hand, obviously, because right. sure. he couldn't see. But as soon as you started talking, you say, all right, Dershowitz, tell me why this is, you know, he was amazing. (laughs) This is Alan Dershowitz. You recognize that voice, I'm sure. The book is called Taking the Stand, My Life in the Law. Professor, I read a lot of biographies, Mm. usually autobiographies as well. I speed read through those first 50 or 100 pages because I'm not interested. I want you to get me right into the currency of what probably attracted me to your personality to begin with. You were an exception, and you were an exception when I read your book because I didn't know much. I still don't know much about Borough Park. Mm -hmm. What is it about a neighborhood that can produce Elliot Gould, Buddy Hackett, Woody Allen, my favorite, Larry David, Mel Brooks and you. What's going on, man? What's in the water? Well, you know, it was the period of time also. It was the post-war period. Jackie Robinson was playing second base for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and we thought if he could play second base, we could do anything. Uh, it was an expanding economy. You know, there's a great bump of sticker at the business school at Harvard, never confuse brains with a bull market. We grew up in a bull market. We had every Good gene pool, though. Come on. A good gene pool. My parents, of course, didn't go to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I tell the story about how I asked my grandmother if she could introduce me to the Judge Berenknopf because I wanted to know from a judge about law school. She says, yeah, sure, but he's a butcher. Why do you call him Judge? That's his name, George, G-E-O-R-G, Judge. That's the way she pronounced George. So, uh, you know, I didn't have any background. I didn't have any people to go to to be mentors. But uh, but Brooklyn College was a phenomenal place, free. You could go there for nothing. I had a 67 average in high school, and I was able to take a test to get into Brooklyn College. I failed physics, I failed math in high school in my upper senior first semester, and then I got straight A's in physics and math in Brooklyn College. What changed? What what lit the fire (laughs) for you? I didn't have rabbis teaching me anymore. I went to yeshiva, and I didn't take to kind of the religious dictation of of what to think, and I had a bad reputation, and it followed me, and then when I went to college, I had a good reputation, and it followed me, and then through law school. We know you for your support of Israel. Right. We know you for your your regard for your your religion, mm-hmm. but you're not a man of faith. 
No, but the God who I doubt is the Jewish God. Uh, and the God what I argue with. Well, you know, I'm an agnostic. I don't know whether there's a God or but not. But you're not hedging they, your bets. I figure a lot of people who say that they are, they're just hedging their bets. Well, to I'm be- hedging my bets a little. I say agnostic. I'm not an atheist. So if I have to get up there and he says, hey, you were wrong. I do exist. I, look, I kept open that possibility. I'm not precluding it. You had a. Uh, I'm skeptical about everything. I'm also skeptical about evolution. I don't believe evolution explains everything about human uh, development and, and, and how we got to be where we are. I think we have a lot yet to fill in the blanks with. There's a vignette in the book. By the way, the book is titled Taking the Stand, My Life in the Law. The book is extraordinary, and if I didn't think it, I wouldn't say it. There's a vignette in the book where you are on an airplane, and yeah. you think you've got 30 minutes to live. Right. What are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you saying? Well, the pilot comes out and says, we have a serious problem, and we were going to have to have a crash landing. Um, I never for a moment thought about God. I didn't make any deals. I didn't say, you know, if you save me, I'll do this. It just didn't occur to me. I discovered I was an agnostic. I didn't want to be one. It was upsetting to my parents. It was upsetting to my family. I could have been a good Orthodox Jew. I, didn't, I don't need lobster. I don't need to eat shrimp. Uh, but... I just found myself not believing. I was a doubter. I was a skeptic. I'm a skeptic and a doubter about everything. <laughs> so you, you wrote a letter instead. I wrote a letter to my children, and uh, I hid it in all my you know shaving stuff. Maybe it would survive even if I didn't survive. And, you know, I, but I'm a strange agnostic. I go to the synagogue. I love Hanukkah. I love, uh, but you know, but I also love going to Christmas parties. So, um, you know, so I, you're you're in the synagogue because you love the experience. You're proud of your faith. You want to see that. your friends. All of that. I love the cantorial music. I grew up as a singer. I was a choir boy for a very famous cantor, Moshe Kusevitsky, and I write about it in my book. I can still sing the traditional Jewish liturgy, and I'm actually working on an opera based on uh, a cantor who survived, who didn't survive the Holocaust, but could have. So, you know, I try to do everything. I, I have FOMS, fear of missing something. So, you know, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a professor. I want to be a talk show host. I want to do everything. I want to write an opera. I want to write novels. I want to continue to write books. I just love what I do. And what will you do when this year ends and after 50 years you're no longer at Harvard? Well, I'll miss my students uh, and I'll continue to do what I'm doing, um, representing some of the most fascinating people in the world, um, consulting on the case involving uh, former Prime Minister Musharraf of Pakistan, the former president of the uh, Ukraine, uh, Kuchma. I'm going to Israel where I'll be meeting uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm going to the White House next week for the Hanukkah party. Maybe I'll meet the president. I've met him on numerous occasions. I have very strong views on the Iranian situation, which I'm happy to share with the president and the prime minister. Is it possible that uh, your good friend, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, isn't as upset at the prospect of this deal with Iran as he's making out to be. I, it, it occurred to me, and I, you may tell me I'm just naive, but it occurred to me a day or two ago that if Bibi Netanyahu were to come out and say, this is a great opportunity with Iran, he kills the deal. Because then the mullahs are going to say, if Netanyahu likes it, we must be crazy to go along. So right. maybe this is all a shell game. <laughs> I wish it were. It's not. Uh, Netanyahu is really, really upset. He's upset at the fact that the United States didn't tell him in advance that they were negotiating behind the scenes for a long period of time. He's upset that uh, the risks to the United States and to Israel and to Saudi Arabia 
are too great and the benefits likely to be too small. We got nothing in exchange except uh, a halt in a program that they deny they're engaged in, namely making nuclear weapons. And in exchange, we may have given a green light or at least a yellow light to China, to other countries to start engaging in trade. Uh, so I think it's a big victory at the moment for Iran. Now, it could work out well. Look, we backed into a great result with Syria just by accident. They're going to give up their chemical weapons and we haven't had to fight. Look, The worst possible thing you can have is to have to attack Iran militarily. Actually, it's the second worst thing. The worst thing would be to allow them to develop nuclear weapons. But, uh, you know, I hope this works. If it works and if we can really have diplomatic relations with Iran, it would be an incredible coup. I think there's a 10 percent chance of that. And I think there's a 30 percent chance it will not work. And I think there's a 10 or 15 percent chance that Iran will actually develop nuclear weapons. Is your mindset, Professor Dershowitz, one of we we had our our heel on the throat of Iran, the sanctions were working, and we should not have let them off the canvas at that particular moment? I do. I think that's right. By the way, I had the same view in relation to Iraq. I think we had Iraq where we wanted them, and that's why we shouldn't have gone to war with Iraq. We didn't benefit by undoing that regime. We had them where we wanted them. I think we had Iran where we wanted them, and we shouldn't have reduced the sanctions. Uh, We should have kept the sanctions on, negotiated with them, and tried to get them to dismantle their nuclear program in exchange for giving them something on the sanctions. This way, they got too much for too little. Alan Dershowitz is in studio with me at the Sirius XM headquarters in New York City. We'll come back and talk more about His life, his book, Taking the Stand, My Life in the Law. Of course, I'm going to bring up OJ. It's a privilege for me to have him here. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. 
Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124 and on the SXM app. Alan Dershowitz is in studio with me. Thanks for being so gracious with your time. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Thanksgiving. It's a privilege for me to finally be in your company. It's my pleasure to be here. Happy holidays to all your listeners. The book is great. Taking the Stand is your autobiography. You tell a story. You're with your good friend, Bibi Netanyahu, and he's got an urgent matter that he needs to discuss with you. He takes me into his private office where there is incredible security. You can't wiretap. You can't listen. And he says, Alan, I need to ask you something. Did OJ do it? (laughs) And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, does Israel have nuclear weapons? He said, you know I can't tell you that. I said, aha. Uh, I've known Bibi since he's 23 years old, and he was a student at MIT, and we're good friends. When I go to Israel, I usually have dinner with him and Sarah, and I've sometimes been used to convey some messages between uh, him and other folks in different administrations, and uh, I have enormous respect for him. It upset me. I, I, you know, I, I had just, I guess, then joined the bar. I get it. You've got the obligation. I'm a believer in everybody being provided a vigorous defense. But it was a chapter where I was not happy with Alan Dershowitz when you were involved in that case, because I really did think that that he beat the rap. In the book, in your book, you take me in a different direction. You don't argue for O.J.'s innocence, Mm-mm. but you do say that with regard to the vial of blood, that you believe that they, they played games with him. They did. And, they and did. perhaps, and I don't remember, sir, uh, Professor, if this was your word choice, but perhaps they framed a guilty man. Well, that was what they believed they were doing. They believed O.J. Simpson was guilty, and everybody has a right to have their opinion on that. I thought he was guilty when I went on a radio show, the television show, the day after the, 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 the killing, and I said so, and, and I was reluctant to take the case, but it was a death penalty case. But we were able to prove that the sock that contained his blood and the blood of his victims, that blood was poured on the sock when it was lying flat because it had mirror image blood splatter on all four sides, which couldn't happen if it was being worn at the time it was splattered. Also, it had EDTA in the blood. EDTA is a chemical not found in the human body. It's an anticoagulant. It's found only in test tubes, and the cop who poured the blood, whose name is Van Adder, I know we know who it was, uh, um, uh, poured blood which had EDTA in it. 
in order to prevent coagulation in the test tube. So the jurors didn't think he was innocent. The jurors concluded that the police had engaged in terrible misconduct, had tainted the evidence, and they just had some doubts. I always thought, that, and this is obvious, that you outlawed the prosecution. Well, that was easy because the lawyers on the other side were, it was like taking candy from a baby. Do you know that the glove episode, I was in the courtroom when the glove was And you write about it in the book. Right. They didn't have to try it on in front of the jury. They could have had them try it on outside the jury to see whether it fit first, and they didn't do that. But I always, when I was on the air at the time, I would always say that Marsha Clark or whomever did the closing should have stood up and said, wait a minute, let, let's just sort of zabruder the film here and think about what this conspiracy would have needed as its component parts for all of this to have been set up. I agree with you. I agree with you. In fact, that's what they did do in the civil case. They had much, much better lawyers in the civil case, and they won the civil and a case different cold jury. and a different jury. But even if they had the same jury, I think if they had different lawyers and had handled the case the way the civil lawyers handled it, they might very well have won. Klaus von Bülow wants you to represent him. We've right. all seen the movie, okay? Right. I think the line in the movie was, you know, get me the Jew. Get the Jew, right. And he uh, means you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, these are folks who had no real contact with uh, people of my background, but he had Burrow heard Park. of me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he had heard of me, and he said, well, you know, they're good at, they're good at being lawyers, and I was good at being a lawyer, right, and I got him acquitted. Right, but why did that piss you off and say, you know what, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to represent them. Oh, him. no, no. I never make a personal judgments about my clients. Look, I tell the story in my book about how um, uh, Leona, Leona Helmsley, Helmsley oh my God, tell uh, was, that story. Was, I was sitting with her at, at having tea, and the waiter brought tea that had a little bit of water in the saucer. She grabbed it from me, threw it on the floor, broke it into a dozen pieces, and screamed at this poor waiter, get on your hands and knees and beg for your job. And I said, Leona, I'll never be seen with you in public again. I don't want to be associated with that kind of conduct. I'll represent you in court, but I'm not your friend, and I don't like you. I hated her, and she was impossible. And I've not liked some of my clients. You know who I really did like? I liked Mike Tyson. He was a really decent guy, and he really got framed by a woman who was looking for the money and who was afraid that her father would beat her up as he did before when she had voluntary sex with another athlete. So uh, if you read my chapter in Taking the Stand and don't believe that Mike Tyson is innocent, then I failed. He is clearly a case where I like the defendant, and I thought he really got framed by the system. And you think that the system was taking it out on him because he'd bitten Evander Holyfield. He was just a bad guy in the eyes of the system. See, I have, I have to tell you something. I'm no fan of O.J. I think O.J. did it. But I have long said that I think O.J. took the hit in Las Vegas. No question. No you agree question with that? that? Oh, no question. He would have gotten six months if he hadn't been O.J. who beat the rap the first time around. I warned him about that. And I tell, I tell the story in my book, Taking the Stand. I say to all my clients who have won, I've had 37 homicide cases, and I've won more than 30 of them. So I have a lot of experience telling clients, go away. Get your face out of the public. Nobody wants to ever see you again. They hate you. They think Think you did it. Go away. Klaus von Bülow went away. He's had a great life. O.J. Simpson that night called Larry King, went to Las Vegas, exposed himself to this, got into trouble in Florida. You know, he just didn't know how to handle his acquittal. I have just two or three minutes left with Alan Dershowitz. The book is called Taking the Stand. I'd be derelict if I didn't ask you about a current headline. Yesterday, the Supreme Court of the United States said that they would take this Hobby Lobby right. case. Right. Uh, explain to my audience what's the case about and give me the, the benefit of your thinking. Well, 
it's whether or not a corporation has religious rights not to participate in a federal program that requires expenditures for birth control and perhaps abortion. There's a way of splitting the difference, and that is to say, yes, you do have the right not to contribute to that aspect of health care, but you have to pay for other aspects of health care. So you have to pay the same amount of money. This is not about money. This is about your religious freedom, but your money will not be used to support something that your religious views are opposed to. I think the Supreme Court can split the difference. Okay, but wait a minute. If I'm the woman who wants contraception coverage and I work for Hobby Lobby, who then is paying for that contraception coverage? Well, the, the government will pay for it, and they'll be indirectly, but not directly, paying for her It's abortion. a shell game. It, it's all about whether or not you have to take money out of your pocket to pay for somebody's uh, health care. Uh, but, you know, what if it's uh, you can imagine uh, somebody who's a Christian scientist and says, uh, I own a company. I want to pay for anybody's health care. I want them to pray. Uh, we, we can't allow people to have complete freedom. They have to contribute. Once they contribute, we can figure out ways of giving them deniability so they can say to their priest, their rabbi, their minister, I didn't directly contribute to something that my poly- my religious views prohibit. You know what's so funny? Uh, Alan Dershowitz is synonymous with Harvard. You're a Yale guy. <laughs> I went to Yale Law School. My daughter went to Yale. My son went to Yale Law School. Uh, uh, and I always have problems because my two grandchildren go to Harvard. And so Harvard-Yale game is a big family division for us. We're an intermarried family, Harvard and Yale. Apart from all these clients that you've represented and the speaking and, and your other endeavors, the fact remains 50 years you've had one employer, Harvard, and that all ends at the end of the next uh, semester. Uh, that's absolutely right. And, you know, you think I'm not an easy guy to get along with, uh, that I would have the same job for 50 years, and I've gotten along great at Harvard. Harvard never tried to change me. They didn't try to turn me into something I'm not. They allowed me to be who I am. And in my book, I explain who I really am. I'm not the guy you see on, on television. TV. Right, I'm right, a very right. different person. Right. I, I think there was an exchange with your son where you're talking about the Von Buell reversal of four Right. And you make the observation, no, that's Dersh, the character on TV. That's that's not Dersh, well, the real know, guy. Larry David, for the 50th anniversary at Harvard, did a videotape in which he said, some people who don't know Alan don't like him. People who know him love him. I'm an exception. I know him well, and I hate his guts because he knows more <laughs> about sports than I do. He tells better jokes, and he went on and on to praise me, but that's Larry. I love the book. I'm glad you finally uh, got together. We got together, and you, you came in studio, and I, I wish you all good things with, with taking the stand. It's... Uh, it's amazing, and, and early on in the book, you go through all those cases with which you have been involved. We're right. going to run out of time in a minute. What's the one that you're most proud of your involvement? Anatoly Sharansky, Russian dissident, there but for the grace of God, go, I I could have been the dissident if my parents had come been in Russia. That gave me the biggest thrill. Walked, walked in a zigzag, did he not, when That's they right. finally let him out? That's right. He yeah. wouldn't follow their orders. He was such a gutsy guy. I admire him when I go to Israel in a couple of weeks. I'm going to have dinner with him. Thanks, Professor. Good to see you. Likewise. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.